All right, let's stand together. Find somebody around, shake somebody's hand, tell them you're glad to see them tonight. The empty cross, the empty grave, life eternal. blessing out of this month so far. Say amen. You can be seated. We'll pray here in just a second. Uh, just to review, and I know it gets repetitive, but I just want to make sure everybody knows exactly what we're doing and where we're at. It's obviously Missions Emphasis Month. Uh, we're trying to look at our missions program and uh, move it forward a little bit. Uh, as a result of really some rapid church growth and a lot of God's blessings on the church, we've kind of outgrown our missions program. And uh, we've got a plan over the next few years to try to get it caught up and try to get it uh, where, where we think would be uh, uh, in balance with the size church that we are and the things that we're doing. And so it's just something. I had a good friend tell me once, you will reap a harvest where you sow an emphasis. So that's why we're emphasizing missions, because we want to begin to have a greater effect on a lost and dying world. Uh, Obviously, the verse this month that we've used as a theme verse talks about taking the gospel to the regions beyond. You know, the thing that we do here and the thing that we, we, we promote so much at Temple is praise and worship and lifting up a holy God. That same passage, if you read the next verse, talks about how that taking that gospel, the story of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, to those who haven't heard it, is one of the greatest ways that you can bring glory to God. Now we can't necessarily each an individual each individual person in here can't necessarily go to uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, or Tanzania, Africa, or Latin America, but we can help others to be able to do that. And so we, as a church, want to ask the question: What can we do? So tonight, as we listen to the presentation of Brother Jonathan Matthews. Join me. Well, first off, before we go any further, let me have a word of prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for today and for your blessings. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this meeting tonight. We ask that every, we, we hope and pray that everything we do would bring honor and glory to you. Lord, I ask you to bless Brother jo uh, Jonathan as he presents his work to us tonight. And Lord, help us to have uh, open hearts and open minds as we listen to his presentation. And Lord, I pray that everything we do would praise you and bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So join me tonight in welcoming Brother Jonathan Matthews from Sao Paulo, Brazil. All right. All right. <laughs> I knew something was wrong. I had some people in the back looking at me like, what, is he talking? You know? <laughs> My name's Jonathan Matthews, okay? And uh, I've got five kids, and uh, the oldest is nine, the youngest is one and a half, 
and we're missionaries in Sao Paulo, Brazil, from Nashville, Tennessee, okay? So we're going to show a presentation real quick. After that presentation, I'll come back up here and uh, talk to you about uh, what we're doing in Brazil. In the mid-1970s, God began working in my parents' lives about going to the mission field. Both of my parents were from rural Ohio, and they had little idea of where to go or where to start. God led them to Tennessee Temple University, and in 1978, after graduation, my father felt the call to go to Sao Paulo, Brazil, and he said, yes, I'll go. My family moved to Sao Paulo, Brazil in the early 80s, and my dad started a church in that city, and that's the same church that I trusted the Lord as my Savior when I was eight years old. A few years later, when I was 11 years old, during a missions conference at this church, I gave my life for the Lord's service. The following year in my life, when I was 12 years old, both of my parents were killed in a car accident in Sao Paulo, Brazil. That wasn't the end, really, it was just the beginning of great things God would do in my life. In 2005, God brought me back to Brazil with my wife, Erin. When most people think of Brazil, they think of the Amazon jungle, native Indians, the beautiful coastline, coffee, and soccer. But the reality of most Brazilians' lives is played out in a much different context. Most Brazilian people live in the great cities of the country. Cities such as Sao Paulo, Brasilia, Salvador, and Rio de Janeiro, just to name a few. This is where most of the people live and work. These cities represent the heartbeat of the country. Sao Paulo is a mega city that boasts a population of 28 million people in its greater metropolitan area. It is considered by many to be the second largest city in the world and the largest city in the developing world. The statistics compiled from the last decade census report are staggering. They show that a thousand people move to Sao Paulo every single day. Today, a poor farmer's family will leave northern Brazil for the bright lights of Sao Paulo. A single young person will move from their village to a more urbanized context to seek out opportunities of education and employment. The moment itself will go unnoticed, but the appearance of that family, that person, within the city limits will mark a watershed in human history. For the first time, the urban population of the world will outnumber the rural. It is in cities like Sao Paulo that the future of the majority of humanity will be played out. Not only are people moving to Sao Paulo from other areas within Brazil, but from other countries around the world. Sao Paulo is home to the largest concentration of Japanese people outside of Japan, with more than one million Japanese calling Sao Paulo home. There are also large concentrations of Koreans, Italians, Portuguese, Arabs, and Jewish immigrants that call Sao Paulo home. With a mix of nationalities, there is also a mix of religious beliefs. Islam and Buddhism and various cults are on the rise, but in a general sense, Catholicism and Spiritism still claim a majority of the Brazilian following. People have come to Sao Paulo for one reason, opportunity. 
Sao Paulo represents one of the world's fastest growing economies and business opportunities can be found on every corner. While some people are able to take advantage of all this opportunity, the majority of people get stuck in a reality they were not prepared for. It is a city of naked contradictions, intense inequality, a city of walls. At its center, the corporate headquarters and gridlocked roads give testament to the nation's wealth, ringed by neighborhoods of condominiums and walled mansions. Beyond this lies the other two-thirds of Sao Paulo, a precarious world of unnamed streets, poverty-class neighborhoods, and endless slums. And the farther you go from the center of the city, the worse the situation tends to get. This is home to a sprawl of slums that each day dispatches tens of thousands of workers to the city in search of some kind of employment. Sao Paulo, for all of its energy, enterprise, and industry, is one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Between 1999 and 2004, Sao Paulo police recorded 24,000 homicides, an average of 5,000 homicides a year, or 13 homicides per day. Armed robbery, kidnappings, and carjackings, and other crimes that produce a quick turnaround of cash for the perpetrator are common even in the best neighborhoods. This is the city God called us to. When we arrived in Sao Paulo in 2005, we really didn't know where to start. We knew God wanted us here, but the city is made up of over 100 districts. So where do you start? So Erin started her language studies and I began researching the demographics of the city. In 2006, after Erin finished her language studies, we felt confident God was leading us to a district known as Cidade Tiradentes. This district holds the largest government housing projects in Latin America and is also one of the fastest growing areas in Latin America. We prayed and planned and as we began meeting people, God led us to a group of Christians in the district with whom we could start. From the beginning, God did amazing things. People were saved, baptized, and within a year of going to this location, we were able to purchase a small property and build. In 2009, the church began interviewing Brazilian pastors to take over the leadership of the church. And in February 2010, the church voted on Pastor Benedito to be the first pastor of the church. Since most of the church members were made up of people that moved to Sao Paulo from other areas, we began developing a plan to mobilize some of these people to start churches in their native towns and regions. We began with Raimundo, a member of the church that had moved to Sao Paulo from the state of Bahia. We worked with him and laid out a plan of execution that in 2008, we would begin a church with him in his native town of Bahia's. The plan was to use him there for two years in an evangelistic capacity and then call a Brazilian pastor to take the lead role of that church. God blessed the work and in March 2010, God led us to invite a Brazilian pastor to take over that church. In 2009, after one year of working in Bahia's, 
Haimunda was given the opportunity to start an in-home Bible study in the village of San Jose, a satellite village of Bajetas. The Bible study flourished and the home soon became too small to meet in. As we began praying about what to do, we became aware of an old abandoned building in that little village. We inquired as to who the owner was and after some research we found out. We simply asked the owners if we could have the building and it was given to us. Shortly after, God supplied the funds to remodel the building and two months later, we held an official inauguration. Many churches in Brazil heard of this amazing story and one man, a 70-year-old retired pastor in one of those churches, felt God calling him to help this little village church. In January 2010, after much prayer, Pastor Leoncio and his wife sold the house that they had lived in all of their lives and moved 600 miles to the little village of San Jose. We just want to thank each and every one of you that have partnered with us to reach Brazil for Christ. Whether you've prayed for us, contributed financially to our ministry, or participated in a short-term missions trip, thank you very much. God has used you to change lives for eternity. Tonight, I'm going to just take a few minutes. Um, you guys get great preaching every week, and uh, I'm here once. So I want to share my story and just share what God's doing in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, the video ended in 2010, 2011. So it's an outdated video, so to bring you up to date on where we're at in ministry right now. Um, you know, as you saw in the video, I grew up in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I mean, it was a great privilege and honor to grow up in a missionary family. Uh, the urban lifestyle, the urban context, um, everything you saw there, that's what I knew growing up. Um, I grew up as a Brazilian, um, in a Brazilian culture, in a Brazilian church that my parents had started. And um, my parents passed away when I was 12 years old in a car accident. And me and my younger brothers and sisters, God spared our lives. We were in that car accident, and God spared our lives. 
And there's one verse I'd like you to see in Scripture, Psalm chapter 40, verse 5. If you could open that real quick, Psalm chapter 40, verse 5. The psalmist says something in this verse that is just awesome. I mean, it's awesome to me. It's, it's a verse that's meant a lot to me in my life. Psalms chapter 40, verse 5. The psalmist says, Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works. How many of you believe God works? Does God work? Amen? And God works in mysterious ways, in different ways, in your life, in my life, in people's lives around the world. And one thing's for sure, regardless of how he works, when he works, he works. That's a fact. And the verse says, many, O Lord, are thy wonderful works, which thou hast done. And get this, and thy thoughts, which are to usward. In other words, why does God work on our behalf? For his glory, because he thinks of us. Isn't that amazing? Amen. God thinks of me and God thinks of you. And, and the psalmist says at the end of this verse, if I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. You know, and um, you think of this verse, and then you think of something like that happened in my life. My parents died in a car accident on the mission field when I was 12 years old. And, and you know, each one of you have a tragedy that's a little different. Uh, but it's a tragedy nonetheless. So I'm not the only one. I'm up front right here, right now, but you're sitting there right now. You know somebody who's gone through a tragedy. But God works because he thinks of us. We're on his mind. And through that circumstance, I didn't understand it when I was 12 years old. I can't say that when I was 12 years old, this is what I thought. In fact, I thought completely the opposite. Hey, God, you know, why is this happening to me? my brothers and sisters, at this point in our lives. But, you know, um, and, and that's natural for us. It's, that's just the truth. I mean, when something happens, we look inward at how it affects us. When God wants us to look upward to him, to look to him. And um, I, I, as a teenager, I was in church, but I wasn't in church. I was sitting there, but my mind and my heart was elsewhere. But thank God that he pursued me with his grace. And he relentlessly pursued me and kept coming at me and kept speaking to me even when I didn't want to hear him. And as a teenager, I felt strongly in my heart at some point that, you know, God wants me to go back to Brazil as a missionary. But the struggle was, is this something that I want because my parents were missionaries and because that's where I grew up? Or is it something that God wants? You know, and, and a lot of times it's, it's a, it's a battle between two goods because what I want to go back to Brazil and serve as a missionary may not seem that bad, but if it's not God's will, it's horrible, okay? And so I just had to hammer that out in my life. And through a certain set of circumstances, I went back to Brazil on a trip, and God allowed me to look into the lives of different families that had been affected by my parents' ministry there and what I saw was the fruit that remained. In my life, when I was in college, I made a decision. I want to be part of something that produces fruit that remains. I want to be part of something that lasts for eternity. I want to be part of something that's bigger than me because it's God. It's God. And so, you know, basically we went back to Brazil in 2005. Me and my wife, uh, we had a two-month-old son and everything you saw in the video. 
Okay, so I won't say everything that you saw in the video because you've already seen it. But we work in the government housing projects. Okay, it's the poorest of the poor of the city of Sao Paulo. And we started a church there. Out of that church, we started two other churches. And in 2010, we came back to the States for a short furlough before going back to Brazil to start our fourth church plant. Well, our fourth church plant, we started in the same government housing projects. And I'm just going to share with you um, two miracle stories. Two miracle stories of how this church plant came about. And I'll fast forward to where we're at today and what our future plans are in ministry. Back at the first church plant, I was praying to the Lord, saying, Lord, you know, we need, we need a, a greater opportunity to impact this district. Just to give you an idea, we're in a district where there's a million people, and it's eight square miles. Eight square miles, a million people. And up to five years ago, because the growth has kind of tapered off, the district grew at a rate of 8% a year. Okay? So 8% of a million is... Come on, 80,000. 80,000 people moving into a community each year. So basically, if you can just start a church for the people coming in, that's a new church for 80,000 people every year, not even touching the already existing million. And that's one district in a city of 100 districts. Okay, you see the, you see the huge need and the opportunity all at the same time? And the average church in an urban context in Brazil is on one-eighth of an acre. One-eighth, an eighth of an acre is smaller than this right here. Okay? That's the entire church property. So we were praying that the, God would give us something in a strategic location where we could have a long-term impact in that district. We researched it. We were researching. We were at this first church plant. We were in our second or third year of ministry in Brazil. I didn't know anything, okay? We are just moving ahead, trusting the Lord. And we were praying, you know, big prayers because God's big. And, God, we, we need a property. But, you know, you're praying for something, but really, I had about, I don't know, $1,000 that I could apply to, you know, purchase a property with. And you're not buying anything for $1,000 in Brazil or anywhere. Well, we're still praying. And we researched the whole district, and we found out there's only five properties larger than an acre for sale. And the largest of which was three acres. So... We were praying, and we looked into some of the prices of how much it was, and it was just astronomical, you know, $600,000, $800,000 for a piece of property in the projects, okay? And um, one night, after a small group Bible study, I was driving home, and I saw some, some guys putting up a new sign on a property at night, you know, just putting a sign up for sale. I, I jotted the number down. The next day, I called them. And the guy said, we're selling this property. It's two acres for $76,000. So I said, can I meet with you tomorrow? So I went there and met with the guy. I said, listen, I don't have any money, but give me 15 days. Take the sign down. Give me 15 days. And if I can purchase it in 15 days, I'll pay the administrative costs because there's a tax you got to pay. And so he would have made about $7,000 more if I could raise the money. I went home, and I prayed, 
And the second day, God laid a guy on my heart. Just one person. One person makes a difference, folks. One person. And I put together a proposal. I sent it to this guy. He told me years before, if you ever have a project that you think is a home run project, let me know. He received the email, and he said, hey, we're going to pray about this. We're going to pray about this. I'm going to put this before some people that I know. On the 14th day, on the 14th day, he calls me back and he says, there's a church. There's a church. They see the vision. They see it's a great opportunity. They're in a building program, and they're taking money out of their building program to buy a property in Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's kingdom vision, folks. So I go to the guy on the 15th day, and I say, 15 days ago, I had $1,000, but I got your money here. And he just looked at me. I said, hey, I'm a missionary, and I serve God. He does great things. This happened in the third year we were in Brazil. Well, we were involved in these other church plants. There was no way we could dedicate our time to starting a church there at that point in time. So we turned over these churches to national pastors, came back to the States, and we were here in 2010, 2011 for a few short months. And I came back here in 2010, 2011 to be able to raise some money and go back to Brazil to start a church on this property God had already given us. Well, I had it all figured out. I had it all figured out. I scheduled churches in September, October, November, December, and January. Okay? In, in September, I had 20 churches scheduled. October, the same thing. November, the same thing. So I had 60 churches scheduled in three months. I went to these churches, and at the end of November, I had raised zero. <laughs> I didn't raise anything. <laughs> Nothing. Well, the next day, I, I went home. We were living in Nashville, Tennessee, and I, I was pretty, you know, just down. I was like, you know, God, you gave us this property. I know you've got, you've got plans for this thing. You've got plans for it. But you know when your, your faith is just kind of, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, the next guy, I got, the next day, a guy calls me. You know one of those phone calls Hey, is this Jonathan? Ma yeah, this is Jonathan Matthews. Who's this? And he, he said his name. And I didn't know who it was. He said, hey, somebody gave me your brochure, and I'd like to talk to you about your project. So I said, sure, where are you? Well, I'm here in Chattanooga. So I, I come down this week, you know. December, I didn't have one meeting. A church doesn't schedule missionaries in December, okay? It's Christmas, okay? <laughs> there, no missionaries are going in December. So I, I was planning on being home with my family in December. So I go and sit down with him. I had five minutes in his office. Five minutes. He said, what do you need? I said, well, we're looking to raise about $120,000 just to put a tent up. Like I've got a tent. We bought a tent similar to the one you got out here uh, to build a basketball court and to build a small facility with bathrooms and kitchens. That's all we, we're going to build. Okay. And he said, well, it's interesting. Well, give me, leave the paper here, and I'll let you know, okay, uh, if we can help in any way. So he calls me back the next day. It's December 3rd. And he says, hey, this is what we'll do, okay? We'll give you a matching funds for whatever you can raise until December 31st. And I'm thinking December 31st next year. No, December 31st, right now, you know, 20-some days from now. So get this. I had been in 60 churches in three months 
and I hadn't raised a penny. So it wasn't a consolation prize for him to say, you know, well, you got 20 days, and I didn't have one church I was scheduled to be in, okay? My wife was pregnant. She was about a month away from, you know, for having a baby. Man, you know, this is, you know, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Got in the car. We, I just drove to, in a radius of, you know, churches a few hours away from where I was at. Sent out emails. December 31st came. There was a stack of mail, and there was $60,000. Isn't that amazing? Folks, the only reason I'm sharing that story with you, I haven't done anything. God does it. God does it. God just, you know, Jonathan, do what you're going to do. Do what your plan is. When you get to the end of yourself, I'll show up. And he does every single time. Every single time. So we went back in 2011. We laid the groundwork. It took us about eight months to get all that stuff. We were just, just mud, you know, the property. So we had to stone it and do all that stuff. And 2012, we started small groups. And uh, January 2013, we launched. We had our first launch service um, at this church. So we're a year and 10 months into it. Last month, we had 13 people baptized. We're still a small group of people. We only have one service a week, and it's all small group oriented. And uh, our focus is to reach people that don't know the Lord and involve people in ministry where they are actively pursuing God and developing their spiritual gifts. And uh, so from that church, this is the thing. This is what's exciting about it, okay? Um, I'll use my hand here to illustrate this because it's the best way I can illustrate it. If you think about your hand, think about every single finger representing a valley geographically. And right in the middle, a hub. We're in a district of a series of valleys where each valley represents maybe 100 to 200,000 people down each valley. And each valley is about a mile and a half long. Okay? And it dead ends. It dead ends. So everybody's exit is right here at the hub. It's a funnel. We are right at the funnel. We're right at the funnel. They're building a monorail train, a subway system, that will go right in front of our church. Right in front of our church. The estimated traffic each day is 500,000 people coming by our property every day once it's actually functional in 2017. Well, here's the thing. Okay, just to show you how God is in control of all things. We bought this property for $76,000. Last year, we had a cash offer on this property for $2 million. Now, some people, why don't you sell it and go somewhere else and have money to build? Well, everything's gone up in equal value. So there's no way you can sell it and do that. Okay? But it shows you that God places you at the right time, the right place, and connects the dots for his will to be accomplished. We're just laborers in his field, folks. It's his field. It's his work. Our job is just to do his bidding and his command. So what's exciting is we've got this church plant. We're right at the beginning. Okay? We're right at the beginning. But our goal is to have a church in each one of these valleys that's all developed around this central point in this district. Now, Here's the thing, okay? 
The district, you saw slums. You saw the picture of the slums? The kid walking through the slums? Okay, that's a slum. In Sao Paulo, if you get one of our brochures out there on the table, you see a huge slum right on the front cover of the brochure. There's over 15,000 slums in Sao Paulo. Okay, tons of slums. Well, in our district, there's a bunch. So within that district of poor people, there's, there's slums, there's government housing projects, there's low-income projects. And our goal is go in the slum, buy a shack, just like this thing you guys build up here. Buy a shack, build a shack in there that's contextually um, right where they're inserted and have a ministry outpost right there. In the government housing projects, the same thing. We're not interested in bringing people there to this hub. We're just interested in using the hub to send people out into the community, to reach them out where they are at. So that's our church plant. That's where we're at right now. And we'll be there until we can develop local national leadership. And the church is at a mature, reproductive stage of life. And then we'll leave there and, Lord willing, start a church somewhere else. The second aspect of our ministry... Okay, the second aspect of our ministry is this. Um, missions, folks, is, is fluid. It's not static. Okay, and this is what I mean by that. Opportunities presented to missionaries 100 years ago are different than opportunities presented to missionaries today. So if I go to a field today and only do that which was done 100 years ago, I may not be filling a gap that's needed in 2014 in that field. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, I'll give you an example. Okay? I'm not going to go to Brazil to translate a new version of the Bible because we have good versions of the Bible. I'm not going to go to Brazil to start a Bible institute or a seminary. There are a few solid Bible institutes and seminaries. I'm not going to go there to develop uh, curriculum, discipleship curriculum. We've got Lifeway present in a few of the cities of, São Paulo, of Brazil. In other words, you have those things available. So as a missionary, your task is identify a gap in the field God's called you to and fill that gap. You follow me? Okay, so church planning is a gap because there's still huge communities that need to have a local church that's preaching the gospel and teaching scriptures. That's a gap. So we're filling that gap. A second gap is this. Like I said, missionaries have been in Brazil for about 100 years, and there are thousands of churches in Brazil. Now, don't forget, Brazil's the size of the U.S. It's a massive country. So just because there's thousands of churches doesn't mean there's not a need in Brazil. There is a huge need in Brazil. But out of those churches established, how many churches are actively involved in missions? Just like this month, you guys are in Missions Month. You're ready to engage missions, engage the world for Christ starting this next Sunday? Well, how many Brazilian churches are actually doing that? Because isn't that the goal? Start churches that actually get the vision and then are doing missions as well? Okay? That's the goal. That's the idea. Well, sadly, less than 10% of churches in Brazil are actively engaging the world for Christ. Now, I took a long time in Brazil and I researched why. Why aren't churches doing that? It's not financially. Yeah, people are poor where we're at, but Brazil is a rich country. And a lot of the churches have a lot of people who have the financial 
stability to contribute towards missions. One of the main reasons is this. People are uninformed, number one, and there's no conduit. There's not an uh, outlet. There's not a vehicle to take them from A to B to Z. In other words, a Brazilian church can know, hey, there's a need in Africa, but how do we support a missionary in Africa? There are no mission boards. There are no missions organizations. There's not a culture of missions in Brazil. So what we did is this. Okay, we've got two options. Either we can teach the church how they can send missionaries, and that's a long process, okay? Let's just give you an idea. Let's say somebody here tonight says, hey, God's called me to go to China. Let's say he goes to Bible college. How many years is that? Four years. He decides to raise support. Average today for, to raise support is three years. So we're at seven years. He goes to the country. To learn Chinese is three years. So you're talking at 10 years, he can basically only explain John 3.16 to a junior higher. Okay? 10 years and hundreds of thousands of dollars later. Okay? Yeah, that's the system we use. We understand that system. But, but, is there another system? I know you guys have a missionary at this church. You guys support Ben Bounds. Okay? Uh, that, that, the hick from Mississippi, that's what I call him. Okay? He's a friend of mine, Ben Bounds. What does he do? He creates, he creates partnerships that help promote the gospel in places where I cannot go and places where you cannot go. So we've taken ministry models from the states and simply reproduced them in Brazil and presented them as options for the local church in Brazil. So presently, we're only one year into it, and we have a bunch of Brazilian churches that are actively partnering with missions projects in Thailand, India, Myanmar, and Vietnam. Okay? So the idea is to take this nationally in Brazil, where we're looking at thousands of churches and having a goal of mobilizing th these churches to the world. Okay? So... Basically, to recap everything I said, we start churches, church planning, and then we mobilize churches to the rest of the world. That's our ministry in Brazil. Okay? Now, before I get into it, I just want to share something quick from the Word. Does anybody have any questions? Any questions? The only dumb question is the one not asked. Okay? So, any questions about what we do, how we do it, where we're at? Yes, ma'am. Well, they, they do that. Locally, they do that. So homegrown missions, they want to participate. The problem is out. Yeah. And so churches in Brazil are actively look. As an example, when we start a church, like this church we just started, before we start the church, we don't, we're not lone rangers. Hey, let's go at it alone. We seek out other churches in the region Okay, and say, hey, God's laid on our heart to start a church in this district. And we sell a vision to them for them to actively help us. Okay, so from day one, the guys up front playing instruments, singing, are from another church that they've bought the idea of urban church planning. So they're volunteers from a local church. 
Like in the beginning, we're, we're, we're going after people that are unchurched. So I can't, you know, recruit Sunday school teachers from new members. They don't know anything. So we, we try to start with a team of Brazilians from other local churches that have bought into the vision of church planting nationally in Brazil. Okay? And, and so that takes place. But what doesn't take place is the world, Africa, Asia, uh, Europe, other countries where they can have an active partnership. And they can go too. We also, we just don't say support who's there, but if God's calling you to go, then you need to go. Okay? I don't know if that answered your question or not, but any other questions about the city? Anything? unbelievable in in the decade between 2000 and 2010 the city of sao paulo grew by a thousand a day okay it's in the slum area because people are coming from areas throughout brazil and throughout the world looking for opportunity few make it and they get stuck in a reality they're not prepared for. They get stuck in a reality they're not prepared for. So, Who do you feel the most those in the slums. The thing is, though, the, the problem—not a problem—but you, you deal. If you start a church middle class, you have one set of problems. You start a church in lower class, it's a different set of problems. Um, lower class. Your problem is people don't read. And so when you approach a teaching or preaching style, you just have to be straightforward. You're only trying to get across one point. You start quoting people or saying anything fancy, they don't even know what you're talking about. So you just got to be direct and to the point. Whereas middle class, it's more systematic, where you're developing a dialogue with them about um, principles in Scripture. Whereas lower class, you're just saying, uh, this is what it is. And you're, you're standing on that for a long time before you move on to step two. Okay? You know, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying with that. But when I first went to this area, I had alliterated outlines, you know, all this fancy stuff. And, you know, people are just sitting there and some of them sleeping, you know. So, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> So, so you just have to change what you do to reach people in the way you can reach people. So people are receptive. Basically, in our area, our, the bane of our existence in our area is New Age Pentecostals. I'll just throw it straight out to you. Why? The reason is, is because they don't preach the gospel we preach. Okay? They just don't. They just don't. Um, everybody is a Christian, but no one is. 90% of the people that I talk to that say they're, well, I'm evangelical. It's a popular thing to be evangelical. But they can't explain to you what salvation is or why they even need it. Why well, I have a hard time believing that person is saved, that they're a Christian. And so it's kind of blurred things. So what we focus on is, is discipleship, okay? We do one-on-one -on -one discipleship. 
and press people. In our discipleship, we try not to focus on knowledge-based discipleship. The goal isn't the transmission of knowledge, but the obedience in the life of the person. So once we reach a point where that person's not moving forward in their obedience to Christ, in their, in their um, relationship with Christ, the discipleship process stalls. It kind of stops right there. Knowledge drives behavior, but if behavior isn't evident at any point in time, you question the existence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so we focus strongly on the discipleship process, okay? And, and really, that kind of straightens the boat in regards to these other movements that are in Brazil right now, okay? When I say New Age, I'm talking like Benny Hinn, okay? For anybody that, well, what's that, okay? And if you don't know who Benny Hinn is, uh, he wears a white suit and he's got white hair, okay? And white shoes, okay? Any other questions? Yes, sir. All of them are on welfare, number one. So that presents a huge problem in the church because there's a welfare generational mentality. They come to church with kind of the idea of to be served as opposed to serving. So that's a huge problem in the local church because that's not what church is about. Okay? And so, you know, and uh, so that's one. And then beyond welfare, they do work. Okay? They do work. Okay? Welfare is for people that uh, work but fall within a low-income bracket. Okay? And so you have people that are stonemasons, that are construction guys, you know, landscaping, you know, that type of stuff. You know, uh, maids, cooks, waiters, service-oriented people in the community. So, yes, sir. Portuguese is the language. Okay, Portuguese is a blend of Spanish, Italian, and French. Okay, Portuguese, this is how it sounds. This is John 3.16 in Portuguese. Porque Deus amou o mundo de tal maneira que ele deu seu filho para que todo aquele que nele crê não pereça, mas tenha vida eterna. That's John 3.16. Okay, and so doesn't sound like Spanish. It's kind of jumbled up. Okay, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, way back in the back. We live eight miles away from the district. We live in the zone. We live right there in the district. Any other questions? All right. Um, I'm just going to share one thing with you tonight, okay? Second Corinthians. Um, you know, the hard thing, being in a conference that's lasted an entire month, is that you've had a bunch of missionaries in, and I was trying to think on the way here, you know, They've probably heard every missions verse that there is to hear, and probably more than once, okay? So I want to try to get a verse that you might have heard it, but maybe not, okay? And I hope not. Second Corinthians chapter 5, okay? Second Corinthians chapter 5, and just a few minutes, okay? I'm not going to go on and on. Just, just want to show you one thing, okay? This one thing in, in this passage. Chapter 5. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he runs through a bunch of motivations, motives, motives for which by he does what he does. In chapter 5, verse 10, he talks about, hey, there's one day where we're going to be standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a motive, okay? I'm going to be before the Lord Jesus Christ one day, not to be judged, not to be judged. In him, God placed my judgment, not to be judged, but everything I did put before him. 
The fire is going to come down. It's either wood, hay, or stubble, or it's precious gold, silver, and stones. And, and then he says in verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. In other words, the love of Christ, not necessarily my love for him, but all that God did moves me to do what I do for him. Now, there's just one verse I want you to see here. Okay, verse. I'm going to read verse 16, 17, 16 and 17. Verse 15, okay? And that he died for all. Do you believe that? He died for all? Isn't that why we're here? He died for all. He died for you. He died for me. Brazilians, Chinese, he died for them all. The verse continues and says, That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. You living? Are you alive right now? In other words, God died so that you might have life spiritual life and abundant life too. John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it in abundance. That's the idea. You're alive. Why are you alive? Why am I alive? Verse 15, that they should not henceforth live unto themselves. Who are you living for? Yourself or are you living for Christ? It doesn't say live for the church even though Christ died for the church, for the pastor, even though you love your pastor, for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And living for Jesus Christ, basically, you will live for the church because he died for it, and you will serve your pastor under his leadership because that's the will of God. The verse continues, and it says, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now, verse 16 is what I want you to see, okay? Wherefore? Henceforth, this is kind of a complicated verse, okay? We're going to read this, and if question marks don't come into your mind, something's wrong, okay? This is old King James language, and this is what it says. Wherefore, henceforth. Now, how many of you use that in your daily? Hey, honey, wherefore, henceforth. No, it's not happening. Wherefore, henceforth. Know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, Yet now, henceforth, know we him no more. You confused? Okay, this is the idea, okay? We don't know men after the flesh anymore. Even though we knew Christ after the flesh, we don't know them that way anymore. What does that mean? Hey, Christ was with them at one point in time, physically, in the flesh, visibly, okay? Christ isn't with us anymore, so we can't see him. Okay? We can't see him physically. So he's saying in this verse, hey, we don't look at people. You're looking at me right now. We don't look at people in a fleshly manner in the, anymore. Now, what does that mean? Um, there's people that look like zeros, and there's people that look like tens. You and I do that. Look at that guy. Come on, look at him. He's got it. He's, he must, you know, he's got stuff together. Now, he, here's the deal. Why? Why don't we do that? Look at the next verse. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You see that? The idea is this. Don't look at the world and don't look at your community through your eyes. 
but through the perspective of what grace does in the life of somebody that's born again. That's the idea of missions. You look out on the landscape of planet Earth, 7 billion people. And you don't even have to go that far. In this community, 80,000 people. There's a bunch of zeros out there. But with the grace of God, all things are made new. They're a new creation. That's what this church is about. That's what Jesus Christ dying on the cross and shedding his blood is all about. Making all things new. Making all things new. That's the focus of our ministry in Brazil. Right there in that one verse. We work among a bunch of zeros. Really, literally. There's days where, honestly, I don't feel like ministering to people as much as I do kicking somebody's teeth in. Okay? That's just the honest truth. And pastor will tell you the same thing. Okay? <laughs> but the, the grace of God in somebody's life. Hey, I'm a new creation. I'm not what I was And it's not yet revealed what I shall be. But I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's what missions is about. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about what you have done in Brazil and what you've done in my life, Lord. The greatest project in Brazil is me, Lord, what you've done in my heart and my life. And thank you for this church, Lord. Thank you for this missions conference all month. And, Lord, just move, move in the heart of every person here present this evening and the church, those who aren't here tonight, Lord, that this month will be a month of decisions, a month of realigning their focus on, on what's important. And you're important and your mission is important, Lord, that we may die to self and live, live unto you, live unto you. In your name I pray, amen.